You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David J. Lynch, global economics correspondent here at The Post. Today we have two segments on American competitiveness, the future of manufacturing, and the uh, return of industrial policy. Later, we'll hear from Governor Mike DeWine, Republican of Ohio, about how the CHIPS Act is taking shape in the Buckeye State. But first, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm joins us to discuss the Inflation Reduction Act, its impact on the American economy, and the transition to to clean energy. Secretary Granholm, welcome. Thank you so much. So glad to be on. Well, we're, we're glad to have you with us. Uh, now, our introductory video covered the, uh, the bare bones of the IRA. I, I want to start with what this uh, important legislation will mean for individual Americans. Where will our viewers see the results in their own lives, and how can they take advantage of it? Yeah, it's a great question because there are huge opportunities for individuals, especially as they consider perhaps retrofitting their homes to be more energy efficient. So, for example, if you wanted to install a heat pump in your home, replace your HVAC system, perhaps it's gone out, you can get significant tax credits to be able to do that. And the you know more moderate or low income you are, the the greater the benefits are. Those, uh, in fact, there will be a series of rebates associated with energy efficient appliances like heat pumps, induction stoves, et cetera, coming out this year. Um, there's also, if you want to generate your own energy, it's a 30% tax credit for uh, solar, for small wind. Uh, it is, there's uh, tax credits for making sure you have, if you want to have an electric vehicle, of course, $7,500 off the top. You can get a tax credit for installing charging uh, equipment in your home, and you can have tax credits for installing batteries in your home as a backup to make your home more resilient. Up to about $18,000 worth of tax credits for these clean energy uh, opportunities, appliances and equipment. And so in the aggregate, I've, I've seen all sorts of estimates for uh, what, what the legislation will uh, ultimately provide, everything from uh, around $370 billion to uh, estimates of over a trillion dollars, taking into account both direct uh, and indirect spending. Can you walk us through the, the mechanics of the financing and give us a ballpark sense of uh, just how expansive you think the uh, real world consequences are going to be? Well, when you think about the Inflation Reduction Act, of course, those are largely, largely tax credits. And so you're going to need to have private sector investment uh, as well. And those tax credits are for both production of clean energy as well as investment in building the facilities to be able to make that clean energy. And that that means the whole supply chain for making that happen. So private sector investment coupled with the tax credits associated with the production of the clean energy means there's a big multiplier on how much could actually be invested in the United States. And then on top of that is the bipartisan infrastructure law. Less tax credits, more grants, and that's for next generation clean technology, for example, uh, clean hydrogen, creating hydrogen hubs across the country. That's $9 billion, but those two require a private sector match. So that you can just double the amounts 
there. So combined, it is hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars uh, invested in clean energy solutions, technologies, supply chains, generation, the largest, as you said, investment in clean energy in U.S. history and among the largest in the world, for sure. Now, the, uh, the sort of industrial policy that the IRA uh, represents and also the CHIPS Act uh, was out of favor in Washington for decades, uh, at least uh, since the Reagan years, which I'm old enough to remember. Uh, the thinking was the market left to its own devices uh, was the best arbiter of, of economic outcomes. What, what's the theory of the case behind the IRA? Why, why is the private sector uh, on its own not able to sniff out these opportunities in the, in the transition to cleaner energy and, and act on them uh, without this level of government involvement? Well, I can tell you that the United States in bowing to the altar of free trade has allowed in, historically other countries to step up with their own industrial policy, their industrial strategy to lure investment offshore. And I'm, I'm a former governor of Michigan. We saw it first hand how our industrial base or the spine of our nation of our of our economy was hollowed out because we sat on our hands. We sat there and allowed China, other countries to swoop in and take huge swaths of our industrial base. We chased as a nation, we chased low cost, uh, low wages, and that created this global shift to low wage countries and away from the United States. So we, I mean, this president said enough, we are not going to sit by anymore and just watch these jobs go overseas. We are going to fight for it. We are no longer just going to bring a knife to a gunfight, a global gunfight for these jobs. We are going to get in the game and we are going to recruit back supply chains that we have lost and be at the forefront of new technologies that we want to create. This is a $23 trillion global market in clean energy and clean energy products by 2030, according to Bloomberg. $23 trillion. So we can sit by and allow other countries to swoop in and gain their share of that market and corner it. Or we can say, heck no, we are getting in this and we're going to fight for our share of it. So that's what this president has done. I'm so glad we used to, I mean, I used to say when I was governor of Michigan, I mean, this may be controversial, but I used to say NAFTA and CAFTA have given us the shafta because all we did was watch all these jobs go away. That is not happening anymore. And so I, for one, and I know a lot of people on both sides of the aisle are really happy that we are fighting for these jobs and these investments in this country. Now, another interesting angle to what's happening here is what's going on in, in red states where uh, many politicians, uh, many voters and their politicians have been uh, unpersuaded by climate science. But now you've got uh, a lot of quite lucrative investments in electric vehicle production, battery production and whatnot uh, appearing in states like Georgia and Tennessee. Uh, to what extent do you think uh, the debate over climate uh, change and the, necess the necessity to do something about it is going to shift as the uh, economic dimension of this debate becomes more explicit, as, as people in red states see that uh, clean energy can mean jobs. Yeah, really important. I mean, those states 
they all want to keep their young people in working there as well. And young, many young people really want to be part of something bigger than themselves. So fighting climate change is one way to do that, but also to get good paying jobs. And so there's several dimensions of this that uh, that red states can love. For example, uh, making sure the jobs exist. So you're going to be talking to Governor DeWine. I mean, Governor DeWine uh, in Ohio has benefited enormously from the Inflation Reduction Act. You had Honda coming to announce battery factories. Uh, you had Ultium, which is partnered with GM, another battery factory in Lordstown. You have solar expansions from First Solar, one of their legacy solar companies, saying that they are going to expand as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act and the chips factory that you're going to talk to them about as well. Industrial states, whether you're red or blue, are going to see an enormous influx of investment from these companies who are going to take advantage of this act. And yes, a lot of this is going to red states. The battery belt has, has shaped around Michigan, Ohio, Tennessee, Georgia, and those states should see that it's in their best interest to be able to embrace the companies that want to go there and give jobs to their citizens, keep their young people there. Um, as I say, it's a $23 trillion market, and you better believe all these states could uh, benefit from it. And you are seeing a lot of these investments going to traditionally red states. Let me just say one, one example of this potential is in oil and gas states for those states to be able to foster an environment that is conducive to, for example, geothermal energy, which is clean baseload power that's beneath our feet and uses the same skill set, for example, as workers in the oil and gas industry. So there's all kinds of jobs for all kinds of people in all pockets of the country. And you better believe red states are going to benefit from it as much as or even more potentially than blue states. Now, there was a quite sobering new report out just today from the United Nations uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And uh, that panel of experts now reporting that the world is likely to miss its most ambitious target of keeping uh, planetary warming below about three degrees Fahrenheit uh, by uh, sometime in the next decade. Uh, that suggests that the that measures like the IRA alone are probably not going to be sufficient to get us where we need to go. Uh, don't we need to put a price on carbon uh, in general? And has the administration given up on efforts to do just that? Well, that uh, putting a price on carbon was never President Biden's goal. He really wanted to approach this with carrots uh, rather than sticks. And let's see how this plays out, because since he has taken office and his push toward incentivizing investment in the United States has taken hold, for example, just in the battery space, batteries for electric vehicles, we've had a hundred over 111 announcements of battery companies coming and expanding in the United States, over $85 billion worth of investment for electrifying our transportation system, which, as you know, takes a third of the, puts the third of the greenhouse gas carbon pollution into the atmosphere that causes that global warming. So we want to be able to see this uh, significant investment and how it plays out. Uh, clearly, other countries have different ways of approaching it, and that's you know up to them. But it is clear that every country feels this. In the United States last year alone, we spent over $160 billion cleaning up after these extreme weather events. We should be acting as though this is an emergency because it is. Who pays for cleaning up those events? 
it is the taxpayers who pay for it. So let us invest in jobs, in energy security, and in protecting our climate so that we don't have to spend money on the backside cleaning up when we could be spending money on creating jobs to prevent climate change from happening in the front, on the front side. Now, House Republicans are talking about passing an energy bill uh, this spring that would include uh, reforms to the permitting process, uh, which many people regard as a huge impediment to making the sort of progress we need to on climate. Uh, if, if this really is the sort of emergency you've just described, uh, don't we need to do something about permitting? Is the administration on board with those sort of changes? And are you willing to take on the, some of the environmental groups who've resisted these efforts traditionally? The president is 100% supportive of speeding up permitting. And, and we all believe, we in the administration believe that you can do that without sacrificing the goals behind uh, NEPA and the other permitting um, rules that protects protect the environment. You can do it more speedily. And the, you know, I don't know that one version or another is better. I know he was behind, excuse me, I shouldn't say that. One version is going to be better than another, but and I know he was behind uh, Senator Manchin's efforts last time. It should not take, for example, over 10 years, 17 years to get a transmission line permitted in a moment when we must invest in the grid. We have spent so much time uh, waiting and doing nothing, and we have an old grid. Now we've got to essentially double the capacity of our grid to make sure that we get to the goals of 100% clean electricity by 2035. The only way we can do this is by speeding up permitting. He's looking at ways to do this from, uh, an exec from the executive branch side, and he will be supporting uh, a permitting reform in the Congress that comes through. Obviously, it's gonna have to come through the Senate as well. Um, it is clear that permitting, speeding up permitting, whether it's for, you know, any type of energy, but particularly clean energy, in light of this report that we just referenced, has to happen if we are really to uh, take action to prevent the, the biggest harms to our planet. Can, can you provide any specifics of the sort of permitting reforms that the president would support? Uh, because many of them, uh, according to, to some critics, do involve the sort of endless uh, legal uh, processes you can you can get into where where groups can uh, file lawsuits that that slow down uh, everything from an oil pipeline on the fossil fuel side of things, but even to you know solar pop, solar power uh, facilities, wind turbines, uh, etc. What what sort of changes would the, the administration back? I think the administration would be, I know the administration would be supportive of just of speed, of speeding up these processes, of making permitting decisions that are concurrent rather than consecutive, for example, of shortening the amount of time that it takes to permit, of adding staff to make sure that things move more quickly. Uh, it was announced, John Podesta announced at Sarah Week last uh, last week, last week, the week before, that um, the administration is looking at existing laws for permitting transmission, for example, under the Federal Power Act to be to do a memorandum of understanding inside of the executive branch to to agree to timeframes on under which uh, 
transmission lines would be permitted. That's the kind of thing he would like to see. We do not want bureaucracy and the bureaucratic red tape underbrush slow the, the need for us to be energy secure and to cite these clean energy projects and to make sure that the projects that uh, are existing are retrofitted and buttoned down, especially if they're fossil uh, infrastructure so that we don't have methane leaks, for example, or even any pipeline with oil and gas leaks. So there is there needs to be much quicker permitting of all kinds of energy infrastructure, but particularly energy infrastructure that will lead us with uh, alacrity to uh, getting to the goals of net zero by 2050. I, I wanted to ask you also about what seems to be something of a tension between your manufacturing goals uh, on the one hand, promoting domestic manufacturing, and the climate imperative on the other, of rolling out these cleaner energy uh, sources as fast as possible. Uh, if, if you're putting forth requirements in the legislation, as is the case, that require domestic sources for electric vehicles, batteries, and whatnot, that, that's going to be uh, added expense. Won't that, uh, won't that slow down the transition that you're trying to achieve? Well, I think a lot of the incentives actually take down some of that initial cost for production, for manufacturing, and of course, the incentives that are at the point of purchase also reduces cost. But clearly, we have to do every everything everywhere all at once, meaning we want to build up this supply chain. And we want to incentivize the purchase of those supplies. We want to build up uh, the full suite of technologies inside the United States. And that takes a little bit of time. So we have to have a reasonable bridge to be able to get there. But we think that the incentives that have been put on the table for the full supply chain for a lot of these technologies are irresistible. And we know this because we are seeing all of these investments and these announcements coming to the U.S. So in a very short period of time, you will see the buildup, for example, of this solar supply chain. You are seeing the buildup of the battery supply chain for electric vehicles. So we're, we're doing a lot of this simultaneously, and we're excited about the initial response that we're seeing from the private sector on it. Now, any any innovative effort is going to have its losses as as well as its wins, and I wonder what provisions uh, are in place to guard against the sort of losses we saw in 2009, the American uh, Recovery uh, uh, Act, uh, which funded things like Solyndra, a uh, solar power startup that got a lot of attention when it failed, maybe disproportionate attention, but the political reality was it, it hurt President Obama at the time. What, what safeguards do you have in place uh, to protect against a repeat of that? And how uh, enduring is the political support for this effort? Could, could you survive a, a cylinder or two? Well, let's just be clear that you're referring to the loan programs office and they do very strict vetting of their programs, but they are in place to take on the technology risks that commercial banks won't do at this time because a lot of the technologies that they have been investing in are newer technologies. That was the case probably back with Solyndra and that is the case. That's the purpose of a portion of the loan programs office portfolio. However, there are incredible professionals who do a huge amount of work vetting these uh, programs, working with the private sector to ensure 
that they have thought through every angle, that they've got customers, they've got suppliers, they've got offtake, they've got um, a, a program that will be profitable into the future. So that while there may be some, there haven't been yet, uh, you know, I'm not saying that there won't be. They do an awful lot of work to prevent that from happening, but that's part of what this entire program's purpose is, is to make sure that there is a place for new technologies where very conservative banks will not invest because it is a new technology. We've got to be able to have the courage to invest in some of those uh, experiments, but experiments that will prove out to be very much bankable into the future. With respect to other grants, et cetera, every single uh, grant that comes out of, for example, the Department of Energy, and I'm sure this is true with other departments, is peer reviewed for the best technology uh, by a panel of experts. Only the best technologies are the ones that get these awards. Again, we work with them to make sure that they will be successful. So there will be, I am certain, some failures in the system, but we work very hard to minimize those so that the taxpayer is protected to the fullest extent that we possibly can. Okay, well, we're gonna have to leave it there. We're just about out of time. Uh, Secretary Granholm, thanks very much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Barbara Humpton, CEO of Siemens USA, and I'm thrilled to be here today with CEO and co-founder of Core Power, Lindsay Gorrell. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for joining me. And you lead Core Power, a provider of batteries and integrated solutions for the electric vehicle and energy storage sectors. We've all heard a lot about the need for batteries to drive electrification, and I'm excited to talk to you because Core is leaning into that challenge. Siemens is proud to be working with you on a big project that we'll talk about today. But first, we're in an exciting moment for industry in America, and it's happening after an eventful few years in which we've navigated tough supply chain disruptions and welcomed historic government investments in infrastructure. You founded Core Power in 2018, which seems like a lifetime ago. Tell us about how the company started and how your vision for the company is now coming to life. Thanks, Barbara. I'm excited to be on this Washington Post Live. So my previous company I sold, I was in the mining sector all my life. The previous company was basically a critical supply to uh, lithium batteries, which, started, which made me focus and found 2018. And as you mentioned, the, the, the our facility in Arizona, we broke ground in December of 2022. You know, and I think Corplex will be an anchor for the domestic supply chain, will provide sales and e-mobility and utility skill storage to the entire infrastructure of the United States. You know? And we, were, we want to position our, our, ourselves to be the domestic supply chain, to create a supply chain for all industries and EV sector and infrastructure, including from both before the sales and, and above. And what's unique is we are US-owned IP, which is obviously very rare, um, and, and, you know, with my background has allowed me to get us to this point so quickly, even though five years seems like a long time, but we've progressed this thing very, very quickly. Um, and I think we fill the gap in domestic manufacturing by providing the storage assets that make clean energy available where and when it's needed. And one thing we want to dispel right off the bat is that the minerals that go into lithium batteries are not rare. They're everywhere. The, the issue you have is timing, meaning you have to discover it, permit it, and put in production. And I think that with government and private sector working together, we can get there in the next five years.
That's exciting. Now, in a previous segment like this one, I had a chance to talk to Phoenix Mayor Kate Gallego about how Phoenix has become a hub for EV innovation. And so I wanted to highlight the Coreplex in particular, your lithium-ion battery cell gigafactory that you're putting up now, as you say. And Siemens is so proud to be involved with it. What does it take to create a gigafactory like this? And what does it mean not only for the Phoenix community, but for the United States as a whole? Well, you need a super group of people working together. And But we are bringing a uh, $1.25 billion modern clean manufacturing facility to one of the fastest growing communities in Arizona called Buckeye. You know, and Buckeye has been very receptive. We are bringing thousands of jobs to the market and a majority of these jobs don't require advanced education, many technical in nature. And one of the big things about Buckeye is almost everybody travels to Phoenix to work. So we can cut off two hours of the commute to work with us in Buckeye. On top of all that, we're partnering with colleges, universities, and technical schools to train and further provide education for our employees. We understand the need to train, to start training employees now for this industry, and it's gonna take more than just core power, but we believe the work we are doing in Arizona now with high schools, all the way to universities, will basically start a founding, basically a founding block for not just us, but all the other industries to follow. And I think that's very, very important as we develop the next generation of employees. But there's another piece of this. Arizona is also home to many EV companies and the state has state was one of the early adopters to utility scale energy storage, uh, which is both our customers. But today, most of these product and projects are all come from overseas. And the Coreplex will show that the world, we can produce high quality product for the EV and energy storage industries right here in the United States. We see Core as an independent battery producer where all the other batteries companies coming to the United States are tied to larger OEMs. And there is a massive amount of demand for infrastructure and hundreds of other EV companies related that are in desperate need of supply and will be that supply. We think this is important because it's going to take more than the established few to meet the energy transition. And we worked very hard over the last year, last four years to prove our product is tier one and is, we've had success both in energy storage and EV charging, EV applications all over the world. And we've been able to negotiate large offtake agreements that will pre-sell the majority of the Coreplex production before it is even built. So again, Core makes the battery sell. We are the foundation to the energy transition. Without the cell, there's no transition. And that's what's really important. And we, we can sh we're showing everybody we don't need to rely on other countries to get there. Core is US-based, American IP, and we're strategically trying to bring the supply chain here because there's one thing we've learned in the last three years is that having access to your own raw materials is absolutely essential. Thanks. Well, then in closing, let's come back to this idea that none of us will shape a more sustainable future alone. A lot of folks know why policy action and investment at the federal, state, and local levels matter. But I also like to point out that this is just a down payment. There's also a big role for private sector financing to play. And give us your perspective on, on what it takes to actually bring a huge project like this to reality. For sure. I mean, having the U.S. government invest in the growth of these industries is massive, right? Which will allow our industry to start moving rapidly at the scale required to meet the energy transition rules. The IRA is a great start and allows the private sector to make major investments with less risk in early stages, which they would normally not do. This is still a young industry, but 
But with this support, the industry would mature very quickly. We'll see more innovation in the sector, which will be essential for us to hit targets like long duration, very fast charging cells, something that Core is working on right now. Eventually, we'll see the government funding ramp, ramp down as the industry becomes viable standing alone. But in the short term, it will be essential that the government continues to support those of us who are pushing the sector forward and will show the world in no time that we are the, we are the leaders in this technology. This is why, Barbara, I can't wait to welcome you to the to Buckeye when the Coreplex is up and running. Thank you. Lindsay Gorl, thank you so much. Thank you for your leadership, and I'm proud to be a partner. And now, back to Washington Post Live. For those of you just joining us, I'm David J. Lynch, Global Economics Correspondent here at The Post. My next guest is Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio. Governor, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate you coming. Let, let's start with uh, Intel's uh, $20 billion uh, project outside of Columbus to put up two state-of-the-art chips foundries. Uh, as I understand it, this is the largest single private sector investment uh, in your state's history. Can you tell us a little, bit, a little bit about how it developed and what the role of both federal and state government incentives were in bringing it about? Well, we started, uh, I think, as a real long shot. We don't really have a history of making ships in Ohio, or certainly not much of any uh, history of it. Um, and we put in our application that basically Intel said, uh, uh, you know, you got three days, give us a site. So we went out to all six of our regions and with the specifications that Intel had given us, we got one site back and uh, we were we were off and running. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, they told us that we were one of, I think, 40 different sites around around the country. And, um, you know, we were just very happy to be able to get this win. It's a big, big win. It, uh, we have a lot of things we think going for us in Ohio. We have an abundance of water. Um, Intel was also looking to be fairly close to a major university. Uh, and this site is close to Ohio State, but it's also close to another, an awful lot of other universities around the you know, that particular area in central Ohio as well. Uh, transportation is is good. And I think that, uh, you know, part of this, I like to think, uh, is the personal relationships that we built uh, and the trust that we built over time and going back and forth with, with Intel. Uh, we, we took the attitude that in every case, when they asked for something, we would try to get to yes, but we also told them, look, when we can't get to yes, we'll tell you that we, we cannot do it. We also emphasized that uh, we, we were in this for the long run, that uh, it wasn't just a question of, of making a deal and, and, and moving on and let them do what they do. Um, you know, we would continue to run interference for them. We would try to make things happen um, because we know that this is a long uh, you know, we are in this for the long run. And what, frankly, we hope and what they told us uh, is that not only will we have this first uh, phase, but a possibility of three more phases uh, to go to go beyond that. You ask about the incentives, uh, you know, Intel, we certainly gave Intel some incentives, but what they told us was our, in, our incentives really were not greater than other states, that uh, everybody that was competing really had know, some incentives on the line that they were willing to put forward. Um, uh, so I think to, for us, it was a combination of many things coming together. And ultimately, I think it was just, you know, the trust that they had in us that we could get the job done, that we were, 
you know, going to be partners of theirs for a long, long time into the future. Uh, the federal incentives uh, really came to play in this manner. Intel told us we're going to build, once they made the decision, we're going to build in Ohio, we're going to build on this site, we're going to put phase one in. Uh, our ability to move to phase two, phase three, phase four uh, is dependent upon whether or not the CHIP Act does in fact pass. So that's how they approached it uh, to us or how they set it up to us. And so that's, I guess, how I would describe the, uh, the federal uh, incentives and what impact that was going to ultimately have, have on Intel and have on the state of Ohio. So, so just to, to clarify those additional follow-on phases, and I've seen estimates from the company that over a long period, this could ultimately be worth as much as $100 billion, which is an extraordinary sum. How, how definite are those follow-on phases? What needs to happen in order for them to materialize? Well, the first big hurdle Intel made clear was the passage of the CHIP Act. That has now passed, of course. Uh, so, uh, you know, it depends, I'm sure, on the market. It depends on a lot of different factors that are, frankly, beyond Ohio's control. But what we have always said is, look, we're going to do our part. We're going to do everything that we can. We want you to grow. We want you to go to phase two and three and four. Uh, you know, phase one itself, as you said, is, is the biggest investment that has ever been made in the history of, of, of the state of Ohio. Uh, you know, they already have 167 suppliers, I think, in the state of Ohio, and they're, they're adding more. And some of those are going to be in central Ohio. Some of those will be in other parts of the state. So the impact on Ohio is just, just huge. The other thing I told our team when we were, uh, you know, still a, uh, a pretty good long shot uh, is that if we can pull this off, I think it will send a signal to other companies all over the country that Ohio is a place to look at. If Intel made this decision in Ohio, uh, other companies, whatever they make, uh, should look to Ohio. We are historically a manufacturing state. Uh, this is one of the main things that, that we have always done. And we have all the other assets that, you know, I listed, <clears throat> excuse me, I listed earlier in our, in our conversation. So I'm, I'm interested in, in your views on both the, the wisdom and limits of this sort of federal industrial policy. Uh, I think it's accurate to say, at least since the Reagan era, the standard Republican view has always been that, that markets, free markets worked best at rendering economic decisions and that the government was wasteful and inefficient and really a source of trouble for the economy as often as anything else. So what's changed? And if massive government subsidies for the semiconductor industry are a good idea, why not have the government subsidize a whole bunch of other industries? Well, I think that's a very good question. Uh, you know, I was in, when I went to the United States House of Representatives, Ronald Reagan was president. And so eight years in the House and, and uh, 12 years in the United States Senate, I un understand, you know, the, what, you're, what you're saying about basic Republican philosophy of, of government backing off. Uh, but I think facts have changed. Uh, we have a very aggressive competitor uh, in regard to China, uh, that will steal. Uh, they'll do anything that they can need to do. Uh, they subsidize certainly industries that think they think need to be subsidized. 
And it's not only China that does that. We're seeing other countries that do that. And certainly most, if not all, the countries that are really our competitors in regard to chip manufacturing. Uh, I don't have to tell you, or our listeners, our viewers, that you know how important chips are. Uh, Fran and I wanted to buy a truck uh, a year or so ago for a pickup truck for our farm. And I called, called my dealer up and I told him what I wanted. He said, look, you're going to be lucky to get, uh, you know, w- w- what we can get you. And, you know, it's going to be three months, four months, five months. And so many Americans saw that because of the fact that we didn't have chips. You know, we didn't have chips for a pickup truck. We don't have chips for uh, automobiles and the ripple effect that that has. So I think it's a different world today. Uh, I think that we certainly cannot and should not be subsidizing every industry, but I think making strategic decisions that are in the national interest of the United States uh, makes makes eminent sense. And the CHIP Act decision, uh, to put the CHIP Act on for Congress to actually pass it, uh, I think also makes a great deal of sense, not just for our economy, but also for national defense. Uh, and so facts have changed, in my opinion. I think we have to be strategic about it. I think we have to be smart about it. We don't want to, you know, have a, a command, a control economy where the federal government is picking, always picking winners and losers. But I think doing it strategically where it makes sense uh, is smart. And if we don't do it, uh, I think we're going to pay a, pay a huge price and frankly already have paid a price. We're already seeing, though, what what some have referred to as sort of mission creep uh, in the implementation of the CHIPS Act. The Commerce Department is requiring bidders for the funding under the program to provide child care uh, in order to qualify. And uh, the administration defends that as a measure that's necessary to uh, help secure an adequate labor supply for these projects. Uh, some in your party and and, uh, and independent analysts have have said it's the administration trying to achieve uh, social policy goals that they weren't able to get through Congress uh, on their own. Do those sort of measures make you uncomfortable at all, or or do you think they are motivated by a desire to maximize the labor supply? Well, the biggest problem that we find in Ohio today, we're creating more jobs every day than we have people to fill them. So, uh, you know, getting people to work. Uh, uh, you know, if they need childcare, making sure they have childcare is something that companies are moving to on their own. Um, you know, Intel had a plan to do the childcare, whether that was in that bill or not. Um, I think, you know, when you look at what is necessary to have your employees there, uh, and so they can work a day and uh, not have to take off because their childcare went down, uh, the child has a, a problem, uh, I think makes makes a lot of sense. So again, you, you can argue that that either way, but I think the uh, the market is taking care of a lot of that. The labor uh, issue is is a, already emerging as a uh, a potential challenge uh, for the chips uh, projects, not just in Ohio but but elsewhere. Uh, as you know, we're at a point of historical tightness. Uh, in the labor force. Uh, what sort of workforce development efforts uh, are you ramping up in Ohio, either in conjunction with Intel, other employers, or, or just on your own? And what sort of what sort of goals or progress do you anticipate? Yeah, 
As far as Intel, I'll take that first. Um, all along the plan has been, and it's now being executed to bring in Ohio community colleges, bring in Ohio four-year colleges uh, and universities, and that is actually taking place. Uh, so there's a very close relationship between Intel and a number of our universities. Uh, our universities are actually working together, which is a great thing. And so that, that part of that is moving, moving forward, I, I think, very well. Uh, interesting thing about Intel, uh, you know, the average salary is going to be a very, very good, good salary, well, well over $100,000. Uh, but uh, a good number, over half the employees, you know, do not have to have a four-year college education. Uh, some a two-year will do, some even less than that will, will do beyond high school. So uh, the big picture, I, I think, for, for Ohio is that we are, in fact, creating more jobs every day than we have people to fill them. And so really there's only one answer, and that is to make sure that Every Ohioan lives up to their full God-given potential uh, so that you, we don't have young people coming out of high school uh, who are not on some pathway. So we have really ramped up our career tech in Ohio, uh, putting a lot more money and resources into career tech. The interesting thing is I travel around the state this summer. My wife, Fran, and I spent a lot of time traveling around Ohio, so did the Lieutenant Governor John Houston. Uh, and just, you know, talking uh, to young people who are in career tech and just high school students and just seeing how excited they are and the good jobs that they can, in fact, get. So, but we also, to, to deal with this in the long run, we have to start early. So pre, prenatal care, uh, early childhood development, you know, all of these things we're putting a lot more focus on so that when these children do in fact get kindergarten, they're, they're you know, ready, ready for kindergarten. And all the way through, we're putting a, a real new focus on, on uh, reading. Uh, in, in the budget that I just presented to the General Assembly, um, you know, we tell our local schools uh, you know, that they do have to use the science of reading, that they have to use phonics, because we now know with a lot of data to show it that this is how kids best learn to read. So it's these things. They're not going to, that's not going to solve our uh, employment problem, you know, for this year, but it's not going to be too long to these, these kids, you know, who are in third or fourth grade, uh, you know, are coming out of high school and having kids that can read, having kids that can live up to their full potential on a pathway, whether that's four years, two years, or whether it's, it's, it's a trade or something else, uh, that really, I think, is the most important thing that the state can do uh, and something that we actually do have some control over. As you say, these, these new jobs at Intel are going to be very uh, good-paying jobs, six-figure annual salaries, I believe. Um, but to make sure that, that I'm clear on just who who can uh, anticipate getting such a position. These aren't the sort of positions that somebody could walk out of a tool and die shop in Columbus uh, one day and go to work for Intel the next. Even if even if they don't require a four year degree, uh, my understanding is that many of them do require uh, skilled certifications, technical specialist uh, qualifications. That the average guy working in a uh, in a in a factory somewhere is is unlikely to have is is that right? 
I think I think it's not entirely right. I think there are certainly some positions that Intel that someone can can go into. Intel, look, is going to do some of their own training as well. Uh, you know, you've got a good, reliable person uh, who has some background in that area. Uh, there are going to be some jobs at Intel for them, but uh, it's really a combination of things. It's a combination of the two-year schools as well as the four-year schools. Um, and again, this is being worked out uh, very, very closely with Intel. Intel is very much involved in this. They put real money into it uh, in a real close relationship with our educational institutions in Ohio. Uh, the other uh, part of this labor issue, of course, uh, that's worth discussing is the immigration uh, situation. And two of your uh, Republican colleagues, governors, uh, Eric Holcomb in Indiana and Spencer Cox in Utah, wrote in a recent op-ed in the Post, uh, quote, we call on Congress to end its two-decade standoff on setting immigration policy. We believe that states should be able to sponsor whatever immigrants serve the needs of their communities. Uh, and that, uh, that stance aimed at addressing labor shortfalls in, in those states. Is that something that you would support? Yes, absolutely. Look, I've, I, as I said, I spent 20 years in Congress and uh, we were able to get an immigration bill passed uh, early on in my, my term as a, a, a representative in the U.S. House. Uh, that was in the mid-80s. But since that time, we really have not, we've really failed as a country to come up with a rational immigration policy. And what we see, of course, is that the illegal immigration controversy and the complete failure of our, our you know, federal government to stop illegal immigration, it has made it impossible for us to pass any rational legal immigration policy in this country. Um, we, we need to be more hard-headed about it in the sense that, you know, somebody who has skills, who wants to come to the United States, who, who or even if they, you know, uh, depending on the state, if whatever that state is looking for. And I think one of the things about the op-ed piece uh, is they would leave it up to the governors. Governors know what their states need generally. <laughs> They know what their employment situation is. Um, so, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Congress really needs to look at this. And if you want to talk about failures over the last 20, 30 years, uh, failure to come up with a, a legal immigration policy that makes sense uh, has been, you know, one of those huge, huge failures. Now, the Biden administration uh, advertises the its IRA uh, legislation and the CHIPS Act as part of a uh, genuine renaissance in manufacturing that they're taking credit for. In, in your view, has anything fundamental changed about the attractiveness uh, of the U.S. as a manufacturing platform? And, and if it has, does the Biden administration deserve credit for it, or is it simply the result of, of other forces? Well, I, I, to me, one of the big things that happened uh, over the last few years, of course, with was the, the pandemic. And like a lot of huge things that happen in a country, there's some consequences that maybe no one predicted. Uh, you know, we went through the struggle. Our hospitals in Ohio went through the struggle. How do we get N95 masks in here from, from China? But it wasn't just the N95 mask, it was gowns. How do we get gowns? How do we get gloves? Uh, and, you know, all of these things, or most of them, have gone away, and we're making them overseas. So I think one of the lessons <clears throat> that we 
take from uh, the pandemic is we have to make more things in the United States. We just cannot be so dependent on other countries. That doesn't mean we're going to make everything in the United States. But uh, I, I was in a in a in a company called American Nitro uh, this week, and they really had ribbon cutting ceremony. This is right here in Ohio, uh, and they're making now gloves. Uh, gloves they're made right here in in the United States, and uh, there'll be gloves for for hospitals, and they're going to make millions and millions and millions of these gloves. Uh, you know, that would not have happened, I think, without the shock uh, and of, of the pandemic when we saw supply lines totally messed up uh, and we saw just great panic that we could not get certain certain products. I think also American businesses, as, as they looked at this, decided, you know, we really can't be relying on supply line that comes out of China or comes out of, you know, clear across the, uh, the world. Uh, and we need to have some of these suppliers a lot closer to us. We think Ohio is very uh, perfectly uh, situated uh, with our great location, 60% of the population of this country, 60% of the population of Canada is, is within a day's drive of, of Ohio. Um, you know, we've got a good workforce. We have a history, a history uh, of great manufacturing. We are a manufacturing state. So, we think history has come together uh, and it's our time and our time in history. And I think things are looking very good for Ohio and, and frankly, for other manufacturing states. Great. Well, in the 30 seconds or a minute we have left, I just have to sneak in one question about the news of the day, which, of course, is the prospect of former President Trump uh, perhaps being indicted later this week. Two part question. If, in fact, he is indicted, uh, in your view, should he stay in the presidential contest or get out. And second, uh, Governor uh, Ron DeSantis of Florida, his primary competition at the moment, uh, criticized the Manhattan DA today as a, quote, Soros-funded prosecutor, close quote. I wonder, as a governor yourself, if you view it as appropriate for an elected official to weigh in that, in that manner uh, on an active case. Look, I'm a former county prosecuting attorney. Uh, my wife says I'll always be a prosecutor. That's kind of the way I look at things. Uh, I don't know the facts. I mean, I don't know all the facts of that case. Uh, it, it seems odd to me uh, that it has taken that long for the prosecutor to put a case together or decide that they want to put a case together. I don't know the facts, but it just seems odd to me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.